Amen. And kids, before you go to your classes, a couple of housekeeping notes. Uh, you can look around the auditorium and you can see these, probably the, the most stylish clothing in the room. It's like the shirt that Darren is wearing right there, that incredibly fashionable teal Trinity Kids shirt. And you see there's a picture on that. And that image uh, is actually an image of our ambition. Kind of the design is a description of our desire for our kids and it's that our desire for them is that they become trees that are rooted and grounded in the gospel. We want to root them and plant them in the soil so that they can grow to be fruitful and flourish. And uh, if they're going to do that, there's three things that they need. And this also is the three things that every single one of us needs if we're going to grow and flourish. We need sound doctrine, renewal of the Holy Spirit, and faithful living. We need to know Jesus. We need to love Jesus. And then we need to follow Jesus. And our goal, one of our goals at the end of this year is we hope to have opportunities and arenas where they can do all of those things, where they can grow in their knowledge of who he is uh, through Bible study and teaching. They can grow in their love for him through worship, and they can grow in their obedience through him, through serving and following him uh, faithfully. So to kind of to that end, that's one of the, um, so if you're, we're going to start something new this morning, but it's kind of a shift for our middle school and high school students. They've been meeting on Wednesday night at Pioneers, and we're having to shift that around. So one of the things for the middle school students is they're going to start having a class uh, at this time. So when the, the kids leave, there'll be an opportunity for the middle schoolers to grow in their knowledge of Jesus. And then there'll be a small group Bible study for the high schoolers that are going to meet uh, Sunday afternoon at Virginia Riley's house. Is she in here? Uh, Virginia at her house. She's with the kids. All right. So she's having the other kids. And then uh, Julio will be uh, leading that. So that's some of the goals. So kids, you can stand up and you can go to your class. And if you're in middle school and want to check out that class, you go there. Um, and a parent's Mandy Gowder will be leading that. So there's Mandy. And for the middle schoolers, they're going to be meeting in the teacher's lounge. And she's not going to bring them back here. So your middle schoolers will have the run of the place on their own until you track them down. <laughs> All right, so for us, we're going to be, we're starting a new sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew. And so we're looking at Matthew chapter 1. And all, um, all modern communicators, all modern theory of communication, teaching, marketing, sales, all talk about the necessity of starting off with a great hook. Like we say that our attention span is so short that you only got about 20 seconds. And if you can't hook them in that first 20 seconds, you've lost them. So you, so kind of the modern marketing is you got to have a great hook. Then you connect it to a wonderful story. Then you have a compelling call to action. And that's the proper sequence if you want to capture people with communication or teaching. So we're looking at the gospel of Matthew and actually Matthew's gospel is a masterpiece of communication. It's a masterpiece of teaching. So let's think, we would assume that Matthew is going to start off with the most capturing, compelling hook imaginable to get you engaged in the story. So let's begin. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, 
Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. Now, I'm only a third of the way through. Are you hooked? Are you captivated? You say, I cannot wait to hear what happens next. Well, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. And we go on and on. And you actually might be tempted to kind of hit the snooze button in your mind and think, all right, that's boring, not captivated. And my goal for this morning for you is for you actually to feel, actually, this is a brilliant hook to capture us and the genealogies that Matthew starts out with are actually dripping with grace. And so my, my goal and hope for you this morning is that you actually will be hooked into, captivated by the story he's telling, and see how they're used, that it just drips with the grace of God. I'm actually not going to read through all of them, because the first 17 verses just go, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. And uh, I have almost no confidence in my ability to not mangle the names, and so I'm going to try not to do something publicly that would embarrass me. So, you can read through the list of names, and then you come to the culmination at verse 17. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon or to the exile were 14 generations, and from the exile or deportation to Babylon to Christ, the Christ, we're 14 generations. And probably there's not going to be a lot of any slides up this morning. One of the most helpful things to help kind of trace will be this thing that was either in your seat or one of the next ones. This is the actual, the literal plot line of the Bible. So we're going to kind of trace this through this section. So this will be helpful to keep track of. And what we're going to do this morning is I want you to see two things. We want you to see that the genealogies teach us the plot line of the Bible and then the point. So the plot line and the point, and they're going to teach us. Now, all of chapter 1, so Matthew's gospel is a training manual. It's meant to teach us, to teach us what it means to be faithful followers of Christ, what it means to live well, to flourish, what it means to be his people in his world. Uh, it's a training manual for discipleship. It's a, it's a blueprint for how Jesus is going to build his house on this earth, how he's going to bring the kingdom of heaven down to the earth. And so the goal, every chapter has a goal of teaching us something, training us in a certain way. And the goal of chapter one is to help teach us what the, the narrative plot of world history is. And then who are the main characters? So in chapter one, we're going to see that there's, there's three main characters. It's intended to teach us, in essence, the doctrine of the Trinity. Teach us who God is, who Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is. Uh, the genealogy, Matthew, is actually very skillfully teaching us who God is. He's the Father who is over history, shaping it, orchestrating it to bring about his purposes. Who Jesus is when he comes in. And is born. He's Jesus the Christ. He's Emmanuel, God with us, who will save us uh, from our sins. He's the Redeemer. And the Holy Spirit is, is God's active presence among us, bringing the reality of who Christ is to bear in our world. He's God's empowering presence. So chapter 1 is meant to teach us those things. So we're going to look at those first two things, um, the plot line of the Bible, and then who, who God is, who the Father. So you're reading these genealogies. 
you know, our, our tendency would just be to skip over them, but uh, here is actually where a lot of the real action takes place. In some sense, what Matthew's doing is he's giving you a succinct shorthand summary for the history of redemption up until this point, or this is a succinct summary of what's gone on in the entire Old Testament. Now, some of you might remember when, some of you old-timers, over Christmas, we were watching a show. It was this like live action, I don't know, little mermaid thing. And uh, we were watching it. And after the first kind of musical movement, a commercial came on. And I thought we were going to experience like this, this miniature mutiny. Because all of the kids started going, ah, wow, what is that? Daddy, fast forward, fast forward. And I was like, I would, I would love to fast forward but I'm, I'm powerless. Like this is live television. We cannot fast forward. And it, my wife and I, it kind of struck us that they've become so habituated to like shows on demand. They don't, they have no concept of like when you had to watch a show like at its scheduled time and had to wait for the progression. So some of you old timers might remember, like if you wanted to watch a show, like it had a day and a time and you had to be in front of the TV and just watch it then. It's, it's hard to believe such a barbaric age. <laughs> when Cynthia and I were dating, one of the popular shows, and I, I wonder if these were kind of the first shows that really launched, like the binge were they the first ones we ever experienced, but it was lost in 24. And so we would have lost parties and then 24 parties and we, you know, everybody gather around and we watch. And you know how they always started? Previously on Lost, previously on 24. And these were so vital because they would give you just little, just a snapshot into sometimes it would just be a character's face, but just seeing the face, you would connect it with a story arc or just this little line of dialogue. And you know, all right, I know where this is going. Actually, each one of these sections of genealogies is Matthew's way of saying previously in biblical history. This is, this is the story arc. This is, what you need, this is where we're going, and you need to connect it. And so he would have two primary people in the audience. He would have kind of faithful um, Israelites who would have known all of these stories, and you just say the name, and instantly a whole collection of events comes to mind. And then he would have, you know, common uh, Gentiles who'd come from the outside who didn't know any of this. And this actually would be a brilliant way to help bring them up to speed on who and what you need to know. So you can follow along the story. So let's actually look at the story. Because probably the best way for us to track it is not necessarily get into the details of the names, but to see the overarching movement. So what he's going to do, this storyline, it basically has three segments or three acts or maybe three seasons like season one, the season from Abraham to David, uh, season two from David to exile, season three from exile to Christ. So let's look at either act one or season one is from Abraham to David. Look at verse two, all the way to verse six. Abraham was the father of uh, Isaac. Verse six, Jesse, the father of David, the king. So the first act is bringing us from Abraham to David. And what that's telling you, so kind of the key kind of pieces of this story, the key characters, the key movement is going from the promise to Abraham that through him, the Lord was going to uh, bring about blessings to the nations. 
So actually, Abraham, this actually probably wouldn't be Act 1. This is probably Act 2. Act 1 is from Adam to Abraham. And in Adam to Abraham, you see that uh, God created us to dwell in his presence. And then when sin entered in the garden, we had this great fall. And the fall broke us in four key ways. It broke our relationship with God. It broke our relationship with ourselves. broke our relationship with one another. And broke our world. And then Abraham is the start of the process where God is putting it back together again. He's renewing it. He's restoring it. He's healing it. He's fixing it. And some of the the promise to Abraham is that um, that first great separation between us and God is going to be overcome. He's going to bring us back into his presence. And some of the key movements are the story of the Exodus, Moses. Exodus, and then entering, uh, going through the wilderness, entering into the land, and then Joshua, uh, the conquest, taking the land. That kind of first movement is really what we see from Genesis all the way to Joshua. And really, that's the, that act is really all about the priesthood, all about the priest. The, so if you actually read through that whole section of the Bible, one of the things that can trip you up, and you might think they're like these genealogies, they're like, oh, why is there so much about the garments that the priests are wearing or so much time spent on the construction of the tabernacle and how they're supposed to do the minutia of their everyday uh, duties. And it's because what they're doing in this section is God's establishing the priesthood and the point of the priesthood is presence. The whole point is to enter into God's presence. That's the first thing that was lost. And in the priesthood, that's Moses. He's a son of Levi, Aaron, the son of Levi. The Levites were the priests. And it was their job to prepare the pathway so God's people could enter into his presence and then teach them about his word, his will, and his ways. So the goal was presence. And the way you encountered and experienced the presence was through the worship that the priest prescribed. So actually, if you want a summary of that whole first act, the whole first act is the Lord teaching his people, what does it mean to hallow my name, to honor me? to worship me. And it's the establishment of the priesthood. Now we move into act two. Once that gets established, the second act, and then notice from verse six all the way to verse 11. And then David, the king. And so it moves through the line of the kings all the way to verse 11 down to the, the exile. So act two or season two is all about the establishment of the monarchy, the kingdom, the king is going to be established. And what do the kings do? There's two P kind of, there's only really two points up here at the top It's David and Solomon. That's the high point of Israel's history. And what does David do as the king? His job is to be the rest bringer. He defeats God's enemies so God's people can have rest. And then his son, Solomon, his job is to build the temple so he can have a place for the presence. Because that's the goal up until this point, presence. So he builds the temple. But then the shift to the, to the kingdom, the point about the kingdom is that this is to be a place where um, all of God's people experience full flourishing, So in one sense, the point of the priest is to teach them what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is how you love him in faithful God-honoring worship. Then the point of the kingdom is there's to be a society where everyone not only loves the Lord, but they're loving their neighbor as themselves. 
And it's a society, it's a kingdom that's supposed to be marked by justice and righteousness. Justice, the way God has designed the world to act, and righteousness principles that allow you to live in light of that design. And so the goal of the kingdom is to be a good, just, equitable society where people can experience full flourishing. That's the goal of the kingdom. But as you read the story, you know that ideal never really came in any meaningful way into fruition. And it's a story of a downward movement. So all these names of the kings that get repeated, many of them, almost all of them were failed kings. Well, they don't bring about the kingdom as it was supposed to be. So again, if you kind of want a, a summary of the, the, the act season to the kingdom, it's God trying to tell his people, um, what does it mean for the kingdom, um, the king, the kingdom to expand in the earth, kingdom of heaven to be realized here on earth. And then they move into act three, which is down into the darkness of from exile, deportation, exile, to Christ. And then the age of exile in essence is the age of the prophets, you know, a good one-sentence summary of who were the prophets. The prophets were voices crying out in the wilderness. Those are, those are the messengers that the Lord ordained to go to his people and call them out and say, you have these two grand designs. You're to be a royal, act two, priesthood, act one, and you're not doing it. You've been given the instructions and the ways that the Lord wants you to love him with all of your heart, act one, and love your neighbor as yourself, act two, and you're not doing it. You're not living in line with that. So all of the prophets come and their voices crying out in the wilderness. They're crying out to realign your life and your ways to these two things. So in one sense, if you want a kind of one-line summary of the age of the prophets, it was that they were crying out that the Lord's will would be done. He's told you his will in worship and how you live in the world, and we want your life to line up to that. So here's we're tracing the narrative arc, and it's important to see at each one of those stages, he actually establishes kind of those formal offices among his people, the priesthood, the priest first, and then the kings, and then... The prophets. So that's the plot line. But now, what's the point? What's the point of all these things? Why should we know this? One thing is very helpful to know this is because one of the things this can do is can help free us from our obsessive self-centeredness. See, one of the things this is telling you is that there is a grand, you, you are amidst in a grand epic, but it's not primarily about you. Like, if it's true that all the world is a stage, and we're just poor bit players playing our part, if all the world's a stage, that's true, but the central characters aren't you. And the central story and plot line is not about just your life and your happiness. And that actually is tremendously freeing. It can be revolutionary. So that actually tells us the, 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 the point of history. But what Matthew is giving us, he doesn't just want to kind of teach us about history. He wants us to encounter the living Lord. And he wants you to know about who he is and his ways and what he's done. So there's three things that Matthew, three things that these can teach us about who God is, and kind of, the, kind of the, the line to help them stick in your mind is that what the genealogies teach us is they teach us that the line is right, the time is right, and then the design is right. So the line is right, time is right, 
Design is right. So let's think about that first one. The line is right. See, when, when Matthew comes to, de, to, to tell his story of the gospel, notice kind of where the people are. These are people who are down in the bottom. They're down in the darkness. This is the age of the prophets, but even for the prophets, there's been no prophetic voice for 400 years until John the Baptist's voice rings out. It was a time of darkness and silence. And one of the things they're wondering is what happened to all of those promises? I mean, the Old Testament, you have these tremendous promises given to our father Abraham, given to our father David, given to our father Solomon, had all these tremendous promises. What happened to them? And one of the things the genealogy is meant to do is to encourage you that the Lord is faithful to keep his promises. He's faithful. The line was right. God made those promises to Abraham. He made those promises to David. But in the midst of all of the time, the time hasn't nullified them. There's almost 2,000 years between the promise to Abraham and right now. You can forget a lot of things in 2,000 years. You can forget a lot of things in two days. So think about what it, what it would take as a people to hold on to promises for that long. But one of the things the genealogy is reminding them, he is faithful to bring about his word. He gave these promises to Abraham, he gave them to David, and he has not forgotten them. They will come to pass. And I'm reminded of the quote by John Bunyan. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and he was put in prison uh, for almost 10 years. And uh, he's got this line where he said, in the midst of his darkness, the darkest days of being locked away in prison, he said that God had allowed him to lay hold of some of his precious promises that he would not have out of the Bible for all of the gold and silver that could lie between London and York piled to the stars. He said, these promises are so precious to me. I would not trade it for all of the gold and silver that you could pile up for 20 miles. And one of the things this is, is doing is trying to reorient and encourage us that there are precious promises in the word that you can cling to and can be more valuable in your life than anything else. Because he's true to his word. That's what Matthew wants you to know through the genealogy. He is true to his word. But the second thing he wants to say is not only is the line right, that he made these promises and he's going to keep them, but he wants you to know when he'll keep them, he will keep them when the time is right. Now notice in verse 17, we did this, all of the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to exile, 14 generations. From exile to Babylon, from 14 generations. Now, often in the Bible, so we actually don't think of numbers very symbolically, but in the Bible, they, and in all ancient cultures, use numbers often very symbolically or to paint pictures. I was trying to think, are there any other ways that we use numbers in a more symbolic fashion? And we really don't. Maybe it's the triumph of all you mathematicians and engineers and scientists. I mean, we love STEM things. Those are things that make money. So science, technology, uh, what's E? Uh, engineering, mathematics, you know, numbers have to be exact and precise. In ancient cultures, they use numbers very symbolically. Like the only thing I could really think of is like if you have, and maybe I just heard this a lot as a kid. Like you have like your fourth grade teacher who's looking at one of the students and says, all right, that's three strikes and you're out, buster. And you know, what is she saying? 
She's saying, I've given you ample opportunity not to continue to make those mistakes and you continue to transgress, and so now you're, you're punished. But she's kind of using that symbolically. Often the numbers in the Bible be used to, to tell us things symbolically. And so like three is sim- symbolism of the Godhead, four, the symbolism of the created world, seven. Uh, often you'll hear seven as a number of completion. It's not really completion, it's creation. Uh, first creation, new creation, 10 is really the number of completion. Um, and so here you actually see this numerical pattern that Matthew's laying out, and he's painting a picture for you. He's saying there's actually three series of 14 generations. And then you cut them in half, so you've got three series of 14. Kind of cut those in half, you have two sevens, then two sevens, and then two sevens. And then uh, anybody who kind of, who, of his original like Jewish audience would have heard that cycle of six sevens and got really excited because one of the things it would have been an echo towards was something that was the job of the priests to teach and jobs of the kings to do, but they never did, was that God designed there would be this cycle of after um, the seventh cycle of seven years, then there would be this year of jubilee. So everything would be restored and renewed. And one of the things Matthew, by kind of painting that picture, he's letting you know that God is overseeing and orchestrating history in such a way to bring about his restoration project. And his timing is perfect, even when we don't understand it. See, the number of seven really would key them into rest. And this number of kind of the three sets uh, or the six sets of seven would key them into the theme of restoration. And so when he's coming, he's bringing rest and he's bringing restoration. And so what it's showing is that he's, he's, he's overarching, he's, he's sovereign over all things. And he's bringing about rest and restoration. And that's good news for us. Because one of the things it means is we can experience rest, both internal and external. Internal rest where he's coming to fulfill his purposes and and bring about his promises. So in one sense, um, we can relax. We don't have to run the world. You can step down from being CEO of the universe. There already is one. And one of the things Matthew's teaching is he's doing a good job of bringing about his plans and his purposes. And one of the things, you can can also not just experience external rest, you can experience internal rest. I mean, some of us, our, our hearts and minds are just constantly churning with anxiety and accusations and just not feeling any soul rest. But one of those rhythms of the 777 is to help teach us that not only is he true to his promises with the line is right, but when his timing is right, he will bring internal and external peace. He'll bring rest. But notice this last thing that we see here is that his design is right. See, if Matthew, you know, people who are listening to this uh, might have said, all right, that's great. We've been waiting on these promises for 2,000 years. We're excited that now they're starting to come about. We've, um, we're, we're trusting in him to bring about the full year of Jubilee, the year of restoration for all things where renewal can happen. But then how do I know I can be a part What's the design? Is this only designed for certain people or is it open 
He's actually going to lay out a plan for the restoration of all things, but who gets to take part? Who gets to experience it? You know, this, they might say, this sounds good, but is this good for me? Okay, he's powerful, great, but is he good? And one of the things that Matthew's doing with the genealogies is he's actually painting a family portrait of th- th- these are the members of Jesus' family. This is his family portrait. Now, you actually read, one of the things this doesn't really resonate with us is because we don't really know any of these names. We don't know their story. But if you know some of the names and know some of the stories, you know how, in some ways, such, how shocking some of these names would actually be. I mean, one of the first things, we didn't read all of them, but you notice even in the first part, there's the names of five women in the genealogy. That just in itself would have been shocking in the first century Israel. That women would have been included in the genealogy. And then notice the women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah's wife, and then Mary. Do you remember any of their stories? Who's Tamar? Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. Her two sons were Perez and Zerah. How did they come about? They came about by the incestuous relationship between Judah and Tamar because Tamar was pretending to be a prostitute to get back at her father-in-law Judah for not properly taking care and providing for her family. That's the first line. And then who was Rahab? Remember her story? She's the prophet, uh, the, um, she's the uh, prostitute at Jericho who hides the spies. And then look, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Matthew doesn't even name her. And remember the story is about David committing adultery with her and murdering Uriah. So here in the first part of the story of this family, you have adulterers, murderers, children born out of incest and prostitution. And that's the good side of the family. That's the part of the family when things were on the up. This is the part of the family we're proud of. And then you look, if you want to get the story of the people when it's on the way down, you look at like Manasseh. Manasseh, according to Kings, there was no king in Israel's history who committed the wickedness of Manasseh. How he filled the streets of Jerusalem with the people's blood and he sacrificed the children to Moloch. In their world, they hear Manasseh like we would hear the name like Hitler. Like, what would you think of, like, a kid who moved into Loria Park and the first day of fifth grade, he's telling people about himself. He says, actually, I'm the great nephew of Hitler. I mean, his teacher might say, oh, that's wonderful. Mm-mm. Like, let's not share that. And then here you have these characters where Jesus is actually celebrating the whole range of humanity that's brought into his family. You have the highest heights in their history of like Abraham, David, Solomon, and you have the lowest lows and all types of scandalous people in between. And what he's saying, this is my family. This is who I came for. The design was not to build a kingdom and to bring in the good, the powerful, the right, the just, the holy. The design was to bring in all of the weak, wounded, weary, and broken. This is my family. And see, these names are dripping with grace. That's the design. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done. There's a welcome, there's room for you in this family portrait. What it's telling us is no matter how high you are, you can't be above his grace. 
And no matter how low you fall, you can't fall beneath his grace. They're dripping with grace. I find it so fascinating. There's no embarrassment here. You know, one of the interesting things, because family genealogies in the ancient world were resumes. And people in the ancient world, like people do today, monkeyed with their resumes all the time. And so like King Herod, the king we'll meet in chapter 2, did all types of creative embellishment with his resume. And you know, there's certain people, certain parts of your past and history that you just conveniently sweep under the rug and push away. And what's so beautiful and powerful is you don't see any of that here. They're all coming in. There's no, there's no family embarrassment. I mean, all of you know how in your family, everybody's got an Uncle Jojo. <laughs> Uncle Jojo that people are not quite super proud of. And maybe he doesn't always get the invitation to Christmas. And when he comes, he always seems to make it awkward for everybody. And what this is, you're actually, we're all the Uncle Jojo. And this, that's, that's who we are. And we've all been brought in. There's no embarrassment here. And what you see is the power of the gospel in these great reversals. Because according to the world, who gets in? You know, it's the good that get in and the bad are out. It's the skilled that get in. It's the woke who get in. It's the innovative who get in. It's the dreamers who get in. These are the people that get in to be celebrated. And what's Jesus saying? Here's my family. Who gets in? It's the wounded, the weary, the broken. Last night, Cynthia and the girls were coming home from uh, the grocery store. And uh, when they pulled into the garage, our seven-year-old asked one of those surprisingly deep theological questions that as a parent, you always feel completely inadequate to answer. And uh, she looked at Cynthia and said, mommy, are we Christians because daddy preaches every week and you sing? And so we kind of came up to the table and we started talking about right, what makes us Christians. And we talk about how, you know, in one sense, the name, ba- you have the name Bailey because you were born into our family. But the way you get the name Christian, Christian means you're in Jesus's family. How do you become born into that family? And the way you're born into that family is you have to be born again. The people who are born into this family actually are the people who recognize that they're sinners, who repent of their sin, and then they're trusting in Jesus to be a savior. So what makes you in Jesus's family is not that daddy preaches every week and mommy sings. What, what brings you into Jesus' family is that you know that you're a sinner and you look to him as your only savior. That's the only prerequisite to get in this family. Reminded of John Newton, wrote to him Amazing Grace and was so uh, influential in the abolition of the slave trade. Right before he died, he said, there's two things I know. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. And those are the two things you have to know to be brought into the family. And anyone who knows and admits and recognizes this is welcomed in into this family. So the question for you this morning, are you in? Are you in his family? Would you like to be? Would you like to be in a family that's this open and exclusive and then welcomes all and then can renew all and redeem all and restore all and then can teach you and train you about how, what it means to live the life that God designed you to live so you can experience full flourishing? Or if you're a Christian this morning, is there a certain aspect that the genealogies that can teach you about who God is that you really need to remember? 2,000 years is a long time to forget things. Maybe you need to remember that God is a God who keeps his promises. So hold on to hope. 
Or maybe you never remember that God is a God who works out things in his perfect and proper timing. So if you're in one of those seasons where he's calling you to wait, wait faithfully. Or maybe you need to know that he's a gracious God who extends the invitation to enter his family to all. And maybe you can be recommitted to joining him in that beautiful family mission to extend that to all. Now, do you notice the last thing to think about? Maybe you need to experience the power of the pattern of this plot line. You notice the plot line, it rises up, then it falls and then in chapter 1, we're kind of here at Christ with the, the question, can it ever rise again? Can what has fallen ever be lifted up and raised again? And actually, one of the great themes of all of the Gospel of Matthew is how Jesus can lift up and raise the fallen. And that's what we experience and we celebrate every single week. When we come to the table, when we sing songs of praise, we separate that kind of move, that J-curve movement of what has been brought down has now been lifted up and resurrected to new life. So let's pray this morning.